0: Welcome back to Streamageddon, the TV and streaming podcast that is a hit on Ferex. Hold for laughter. Well, I'm your host, Chris Barlow, and I'm joined uh, across the East River by Diane Nora. How you doing, Diane?
1: Oh, I'm doing so well. I'm also a hit on Ferex.
0: You know what else is a hit Spread on Ferex? That anvil in the bell tower. yeah, that's a hit. On Ferix. Boy, we are making some very bad jokes about a very good show called Andor. It is, I'm going to just say it, the best new show on Disney Plus since the Disney Plusening happened. Since we got a Disney Plus in our lives. I, I'm just there. I thought about it this morning and I went, you know what? Andor is the best Disney Plus show, period. I guess that's the end of the podcast. You know, it's been great, Diane. We'll see you next time. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're going to still do a show. Uh, but do, do you agree? Am I right?
1: I'm inclined to agree. I have to say I haven't seen a couple Disney Plus hits, including WandaVision and The Mandalorian. So I can't call it the best without having seen what are probably the other two best.
0: That is a deep confession right there. Don't worry, I've seen both of those. So between the two of us, we can now confirm that yes, Andor is even better than Mighty Duck's Game Changers.
1: (laughs) The competition is stiff.
0: It is. It is. And you know what? We're going to talk about all the reasons Andor is just so good later in this episode, because I think the buzz is finally catching up. Uh, the season just ended. We're going to talk a bit about how it looks like people are beginning to check it out after what was kind of a, a sleepy reaction when the show launched. Uh, and then, more more importantly, we're going to talk about all the things that happened in season one of Andor. So stay tuned to the end for a spoiler-filled discussion about uh, the highs And the even higher highs, because there were no lows in season one of Andor, unless you were Cassian Andor, in which case there were some real low lows for you personally as a, you know, human in space.
1: For pretty much every character on the show, there were some lows, but we'll hold off on that until we give the official spoiler warning.
0: That is a fair point. And you know what else we have to get to first anyway? A little bit of news. And you know, uh, this is going to seem perhaps off topic, but there is something that I've been dying to talk about. And so uh, this is as good a time as any to finally ask the question, is a Frasier reboot actually a Frasier reboot if the only character returning in the Frasier reboot is Frasier? Diane, thoughts?
1: I think that that is a fair question and one worth examining, actually, in this era where it seems like, just about every successful piece of intellectual property is being rebooted. Um, I do think to me, it depends not just on the cast, but on what the show is essentially like exploring or like, what is the like thesis of the show for me? Frasier is kind of an odd couple show, right? So you have Frasier and in the pilot, his dad moves in. And one of them is, you know, prissy and neat and uh, a little bit pretentious and the other is not, is not those things. The other is blue collar and a rough around the edges. So I think that if you can find a new way to make it that conflict coming to life, it's still Frasier. It's still essentially Frasier, even if we don't have, you know, John Mahoney recast. But oh, not oh. every TV show that features Frasier, <laughs> as we know, because there are several. Not every TV show that features Frasier is Frasier.
0: Uh huh. Because of course, Cheers is not Frasier. I was going to ask, you know, if all you need is Frasier, is Frasier a Cheers reboot, just without the rest of the it's bar? Spin off. I agree. I agree. But then, what's the line between this being a Frasier reboot and a Frasier spin off that just once again stars Frasier?
1: Well, I think also Cheers was an ensemble show, and Frasier was to a much lesser extent.
0: You know, and that is why I bring this up, because the news has been dripping out that none of the ensemble seems to be returning. John Mahoney, of course, passed away. So I cringed at the thought of recasting him. At least we're not talking about that. That would be the unforgivable line. Uh, And of course, uh, Eddie the Dog has passed away. So there are many cast members not available. And then on top of that, David Hyde Pierce has come out and said, nobody's approached him about it. He's not interested. And we've heard from Kelsey Grammer that the plot essentially is going to relocate Fraser yet again. So this is—it implies that Fraser cut ties with everyone in his life, and how they approach that is really, I think, to your point, going to set the tone of whether or not it actually is Frasier. Can they recapture the, the magic of the odd couple vibe and explain why he's starting over all over again?
1: Maybe he's come to live with Frederick somewhere? You know, and instead of Frasier being the son, he'll be the persnickety father. I do think that if you you would need to have Niles incorporated in some way, even if he's not on screen, like maybe there's a Maris type joke where Niles is never seen. But Niles is around all the time and we know that they're in contact Uh, because. To me, a big part of that show was the fact that like, oh, we're all so difficult. But the major theme is we are family and we support each other and stay together. So the idea that that he would just abandon them for new friends is a bit rough.
0: That's my fear that that is what all of the. um ominous uh, implications of the the drip drip of the casting news has built up in me. is this concern that have they decided that Fraser is more like Kelsey Grammer in this reboot, which would be a bad decision. Just if you don't know what I mean by that, you can Google Kelsey Grammer, not Frazier. but Fraser Fraser's a family man, reluctantly so. And if you have him burn all those bridges, to his both real family and the family he made with Roz and Daphne, if, if they're just dead to him, oh, no.
1: Right, that would be such a shame. And also, I think, I don't think it would be as successful. Kelsey Grammer is funny as Fraser. It's a solid performance. But really, I think the thing that made that show so special was the wit of the writing and the balance of the, of the ensemble
0: and if you are also as curious and terrified as we are you can watch the frasier reboot sometime next year i believe on paramount plus because even though you will always associate frasier with nbc uh yeah no paramount plus
1: that's such a a rough thing that they didn't even ask david hyde pierce
0: I know. That's also what has me like. What What does that mean? What have they decided? The new tone of the show is. Is this going to be like the the Criminal Minds reboot that's on uh, Paramount Plus right now, where it's gritty and dark, and it's about bringing the gang back together to solve a kill, a, a kill, Ooh. a ma- major kill. That's uh. That's my understanding of Criminal Minds.
1: They call it a Fraser reboot, but actually, it's just Kelsey Grammer playing his character from Boss. Yes!
0: Yes! Oh, so many good options there, actually. And and at what point is that a reboot or a spinoff? I don't care anymore. Just do it. (laughs) Do it. But you know what else we need to do? We need to check in on the biggest story in the world of streaming and entertainment. Still, a week later, it's, of course... The Bob Swap. The Rebobbining. The de and Rebobbining. All in one big bob ification of Disney, uh, and as we talked about in our last episode, Bob Iger is back. Bob Chapek is out, uh, and we have more we want to talk about because everybody's talked about this to death. But I, I do want to uh, call out an article that came in the Wall Street Journal last week that dug into more of the details, and in particular, it is now very clear that the board really wanted to get rid of Bob Chapek. For much longer than this, but they were faced with the problem of no one else is qualified to run Disney except Bob Iger, and so it took until they could convince Bob Iger to say yes.
1: Right, a very a very tricky position that they found themselves in. It also makes me think of the firing uh, last year or earlier this year of Peter White, and if part of the reason that uh, Chapek let him go was that he was qualified. And uh, you know, as a smart executive, sometimes the move is <laughs> keeping people yeah. who could take your job uh, at a distance.
0: Very, very possible. Uh, One of the other details that came out in this Wall Street Journal report is that uh, Chapek, who, you know, again, uh, inherited the company at the very beginning of the pandemic and so had many difficult headwinds to navigate. Uh, One of the ways he tried to make the uh, Disney Plus numbers look better, essentially, was by shifting some of the production costs for Disney Plus originals to the Disney Channel by just having those shows air first on the Disney Channel, even though they were intended for Disney Plus and the marketing push was for Disney Plus. And uh, if you're wondering, like, well, what are we talking about, Andor or something? No, we're talking about, like, the Doogie Howser reboot. Do you remember that they did a Doogie Howser reboot that doesn't have um, Doogie Howser in it, but is a Doogie Howser reboot because it's about a child doctor and it has the name Doogie in the title, and that's what defines a Doogie Howser reboot because we're talking about what defines a reboot, I guess?
1: That was one of those reboots that I forgot had existed until I saw it in in the article, um, and I, I think that one's okay. I'm okay to have missed that. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. And and if you if you're the finance guy for the Disney Channel, do you feel okay to have to have that on your bottom line? No,
1: no. And I think you know a bit of creativeness with budgeting you know can be seen as a smart thing but disney is a publicly traded (laughs) corporation and i you know it's certainly not illegal. They went, you know, and, and they made it work. But it, it does seem like it's intentionally misleading uh, investors. And well,
0: it did run afoul of Disney chief financial officer Christine McCarthy, who uh, mm. pushed uh, against Chapek on that and is one of the many, many people who was involved in this uh, Caesar-esque plot to take him down.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want that on my record.
0: No, no. Yeah, he he put himself in a position where he was uh, asking extremely powerful executives around him to stake their names on his decisions. And they rebelled against that.
1: Honestly, fair. I, I I think that the more that I hear about this, the more that I have blame for all Bob's involved.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. And for Iger, the, you know, the narrative is kind of shaping up as he needs a do-over. You know, he, Disney Plus and the legacy of basically everything that comes after his 15-year reign at the company, that's his... You know, that's what people will remember him by. Right now, they think he was a whiz kid for 15 years, and he was, you know, responsible for Star Wars, Marvel, some of the biggest acquisitions in Disney's history. And so they think very highly of him. But that is uh, reminiscent, not to get super econ here, uh, of Jack Welch. But I feel like we can talk about Jack Welch, because Mm -hmm. Jack Welch made GE, which made Jack Donaghy, which made 30 Rock. And Jack Welch is an American hero in the universe of 30 Rock. Still, to this day, I I assume Jack Donaghy looks up to Jack Welch, even though in reality, Jack Welch, who was seen as one of the best CEOs of all time, is now remembered as one of the worst CEOs of all time because his uh, acquisitions and his growth of GE's financial sector led GE to basically implode upon itself in the Great Recession, which is why GE had to sell NBC to Cable Town. And that's the back to the the thirty rock universe that we actually live in, where again NBC is owned by Cable Town. Uh in reality and in fiction. It's it's just too true. And so that is I, I think a really instructive example of what could be going through a Bob Iger's head in this scenario. Sure I am beloved today, but if things continue in the direction that they are going under my successor, I will not be remembered for all my successes. I will be remembered for this big screw up who followed.
1: Right. And I think part of what he needs to do over is not only, you know, find some way to make streaming profitable or at least lose less money, which (laughs) was something that they anticipated and announced. That wasn't a surprise. But at the same time, he needs to find a successor and really give them the tools. Uh, It's going to be very exciting to see who that could be.
0: I, yeah, and that that's actually going to be the next big question. It, it is kind of like a reality show meets succession, because Iger's back for a two-year exclusive engagement where his number one job, really, is to replace himself and get it right this time. Uh, and uh, there's one more detail that came up. Uh, this is, uh, I can't link to this because it's in a subscriber-only newsletter from uh, the very excellent Numlock News. And they interviewed uh, our our dear streaming hero, Julia Alexander, who uh, writes about streaming mm-hmm. and hosts the podcast Downstream. Uh, and so uh, in this interview, they were talking specifically about the drama Disney, because Julia also used to write a newsletter about Disney. And uh, she pointed out a detail that I had not caught, which is... I think just instructive on, you know, what is an example of how uh, Bob Iger and Bob Chapek would have approached maybe the same thing differently. Uh, And it's about the Disney Plus uh, growth targets. And uh, the number here is that when Bob Iger launched Disney Plus, he set a growth target of 60 to 90 million subscribers by the end of 2024. And investors, the market seemed receptive to that growth target. And in business, you want to hit a growth, you want to, you know, an achievable growth target, a big number that you can hit or exceed without, you know, falling on your face. Uh, And and so admittedly, I think 60 to 90 million, at least to my, you know, uh, (laughs) normie eyes, that's a big number. Chapek comes in, the pandemic starts, and everybody gets a little delirious with this idea that we're going to live in the metaverse in the pandemic forever or something like that. And so Chapek just decides, no, no, they're going to have a target of 230 to 260 million Disney Plus subscribers by the end of 2024, and they're not going to hit that number. That, that's just not... It, it is an unrealistic... That's like almost every... At that number, every family in America would have to have Disney+. Plus.
1: It's such an own goal on Chapek's part, which is confusing. And the other part to me that I don't under... Well, what I imagine is that one of the things he wanted to do with that number was to say we're going to beat Netflix without saying we're going to beat Netflix. Um, yeah,
0: I guess. I, I, that is actually a, 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 an instructive lens to look at it through. Because, you know, Chapek was kind of treating the company as more of a tech uh, startup, as more of a Netflix-style company where the data was making more of the decisions and the creatives, you know, created some stuff. But then the data drivers decided, does it go to Disney Plus? Does it go to theatrical? They, the, they He took that, that kind of decision-making away from creative because he thought that a company like Netflix – was doing a better job at growing streaming.
1: Right. And while we still don't know exactly which direction Iger is going to take things, I think we can say very confidently that that is something he'll be rolling back
0: Yes, in fact, we we, we, we speculated this uh, in when we recorded last week, but by the time the episode came out, it was already clear that Iger is undoing that uh, reorg that that Chapek led, the, the reorg that took a lot of that decision-making power away from creative. Like, t- day one, Iger comes in and says, yeah, that's going to go back to the way things were, and some of you might lose your jobs in the process, but don't worry, if anyone gets laid off in the process, it's because I got your back. That was basically the memo Iger put out. He's like, yeah i you know, some of you might uh lose your jobs. Uh but it's because you wanted me. Huh? Huh? Mm. He's back. Bob is back, baby. And uh that is of course our weekly now installment of what's that Bob? Which Bob? Who's Bob? Whose Bob Is It Anyway? Which uh, I'm sorry, this is off off topic, but did you hear Whose Line Is It Anyway is ending? No, after like twenty one seasons i'm i I picked that number out of thin air' cause it the, I don't know there's so many seasons colin colin mockery still hosts he doesn't host he's you know panel um <laughs> don't don't come at me who's line purists uh but he announced that they are they are ending they are ending the final season is filming now,
1: you know what that means. It's time for a Who's Line and Is It Anyway reboot.
0: The, just in time to reboot it. Is it a Who's Line Is It Anyway reboot if Colin Mockery isn't theres is that like What a, if
1: Colin Mockery is the host?
0: I would get into that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, a lot of ideas. Somebody should pick that up on streaming. Back in the day, that would be a perfect opportunity for Yahoo.
1: It can't be that expensive to produce.
0: No, it really can't. They shoot like the whole... As I understand from this announcement, they shoot like an entire season in like two weeks. I love that. Ah, ah, well, you know. uh, Moving on to happier news. There's a war in the stars. A star war, if you will. And uh, this one is a spin-off. We're just gonna get that out of the way. Yes, spin-off, not reboot. But you might also say it's a prequel, because we're talking, of course, about Andor. No spoilers yet, just the details that Andor is a series on Disney Plus, and it is a prequel to the twenty sixteen uh movie Rogue One. I'm gonna, it's about a decade old. Uh at Rogue One, which uh, you know, is a, a Star Wars spin-off. So this is a, a spin-off of a spin off, a prequel of a spin off of a 2016 movie called Rogue One uh, and it stars Diego Luna as Cassian Andor. You may already know that. And in fact, you may already love the show. But you would not be in the majority of people, apparently, because not a lot of people seem
1: to have checked out Andor yet. Very competitive fall.
0: To especially be
1: fair. for big franchise IP. You know, it's, it's hard to go up against House of the Dragon and Lord of the Rings.
0: Yeah, and, and also my question right out the gate is, is there some franchise fatigue here? Because this was a, not just a big franchise fall, but a big franchise year. This isn't even our first Star Wars show of the year. This is, you know, we had Obi-Wan. We have, uh, there's the Bad Batch, the Jedi Tales. If you include the animated side, there's so many Star Wars shows, plus all the Marvel shows. And at a certain point, are people just like, I don't, I've seen enough of those already this year. I'll wait until someone tells me if I should watch this one.
1: I think that's very possible. I also think for some Star Wars fans, they're like, great, we've done this TV thing. I'm ready for a movie. But... As someone who was feeling that, going into it, having seen and/or season one, I finished the season saying, oh, my God, I want to watch more Star Wars content. I that, was like, maybe wow. I should try Boba Fett.
0: Uh, maybe not. I'd, but that that's a different opinion uh, for a different episode. I, I would say... Uh, the buzz seems to be catching up a little bit. We have uh, a link, a paywalled link, so we'll give you a little bit of a summary of this from the RAP. Uh, and this this is some data that came from Parrot Analytics, uh, where Julia Alexander, the aforementioned Julia Alexander works. Um, and uh, they look at the demand level, this, this kind of um, mushy, in, indescribable metric of uh, demand. Not a, a hard number, not a Nielsen rating. These are not ratings. This is buzz interest that they're gauging uh, through social and other platforms and uh, Andor is at the top of that list right now and that uh, hit the top of the list right before the season finale Uh, and and I think that's an interesting uh, moment because it shows that people who were watching the season I think stuck through it to the point where they're talking about it and telling people about it and saying hey you know you should really check this out it's the season finale is this week you know
1: yeah, absolutely. I think using this in-demand metric that Parrot uses, um, I think that it will continue to grow because some of the other shows that are on this chart um, have already wrapped up their seasons. So it could be for uh, the next few weeks uh, that people continue not only catching up with Andor, but also that if it gets more mentions on social media, uh, that will also affect this specific metric.
0: Yeah. And as I've I've heard, you know, uh, like I mentioned, Julia hosts another podcast. I've heard her talk a lot about uh, what they measure and what they look for and what this means in practice sometimes, because obviously, once people watch the season, most people are not immediately going to rewatch it. But that doesn't mean they don't stop talking about it and generating online content and buzz about it. And that could be things like TikTok, that could be obviously Twitter, uh, or whatever else people are trying out right now, Mastodon. Um, So, you know, you know, i I think it's really interesting to think it's really about the cycle of conversation and content creation that happens even after people finish watching the season. and I, I we see that in the rest of this list because what what was number one until Andor took the number one spot was still House of the Dragon. and now House of the Dragons just number two. But that season wrapped it feels like a thousand years ago now
1: it does. It does feel like quite some time ago, though it was exciting to see that some of the other shows that are doing well by this metric are um, things that are on now and not necessarily things that I was expecting. Um, The third slot is Interview with a Vampire. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Which I I was excited to see there because I don't know a lot of other people who are watching it. So my subjective gauge of the buzz is that it's pretty low. But this is, again, one of the beauties of streaming and the internet in general is people can uh, find not just a niche, but a large niche. And and it can uh, get shows that otherwise might not have seemed like they'd have broad appeal, enough of an audience to be uh, a successful hit. And I think Interview with Vampire is a great example of that. I also note on this list I think uh, four of the top 10 are anime.
1: Who'd have thunk?
0: Honestly, I know it's, again, an example of like, I know it's really popular, but I I wouldn't have gauged that there would be that many entries here, uh, including uh, Cyberpunk Edgerunners, which we've talked about briefly before, uh, which is a crossover of video game interests and anime interests. Also notable that uh, Cyberpunk Edgerunners, the only Netflix show on that list right now. And it's a pretty diverse list. We've got Disney Plus, HBO, AMC, Prime Video. But uh, uh, Disney and Prime both have multiple entries. Netflix has just got the one.
1: Right. Uh, Well, I mean, that does make sense, though. Since Monster, it doesn't seem like they've had a a breakout, which was only last month. But, you know.
0: Yeah, I, I guess I'm also surprised Monster's dropped off. That it's not still generating that that content but also in a way there was something about monster kind of um fit with spooky season people wanted to be Dahmer for halloween uh maybe that's part of that drop off too
1: it may be it may also be netflix's binge model uh right. you know that where people consume things faster and so then you get that really high number of hours viewed early on but then it's harder to sustain
0: right whereas i you know taking another quick look at this list almost everything else on this list released weekly even if the seasons have wrapped you know and or house of the dragon interview with the vampire the peripheral which is weekly on prime video uh she hulk still at the bottom of that list but that that puts it in the top 10 weekly uh i i do wonder if that creates a more slow burn effect because some people watch it week to week as it comes out other people wait and binge it afterwards so that spreads your demand out over a longer stretch Right. Well, all this talk about the excitement around Andor has me excited to do, do you know what? Talk more about Andor. But this time with spoilers, because we have finished the entire season of Andor, and we want to unpack uh, all of the really, really interesting stuff that happened. In particular, my favorite thing to talk about, story structure. Ooh. Yes, that is your final Uh, spoiler warning if you don't want to know what happened. uh, Spoiler alert, he dies in the movie from 2016. I don't know how many times I'm going to enjoy saying that, but I just love watching a show where I already know the protagonist
1: is going to die. He is. And when this show was announced, I had a concern that I was like, well, is there going to be a lot to unpack? Because we know what happens to him. How will they create suspense? Uh, and I'm very relieved to say that I think they, they did so very successfully.
0: Suspense, they've got some. Uh, and Andor spread this suspense out over 12 episodes that, as we mentioned when we first talked about the show back at the premiere, um, it's broken up into kind of three story arcs. And now that they're finished, I want to kind of just quickly summarize them. And then more importantly, I want to know which of the three you thought was the best perhaps the most suspenseful the most compelling uh so story arc number one the first three episodes uh, that that is the setup essentially and i, I think of it as the the Feryx story arc ferricks is the the planet the town is is ferricks the name of both the town and the planet or is the town the only town on the planet ferricks
1: I thought of it as sort of a city state.
0: Yeah. Okay. I like that idea. Yeah, the city state of Ferrix, the deserty, uh, bell towery city state of Ferrix. Uh, that's where Kassa begins his story, and that's the first three episodes. And at the end of those first three episodes, of course, he meets uh, our Skarsgard, Lucian, um, and and uh, he's from the Rebel Alliance that is not called that yet. Uh, and if all of this sounds very Star Warsy, don't worry, because it doesn't really. F- Feel very star Wars-y. it's much more like the the shady man who you know is going to somehow instigate a bigger hero's journey arrives at the end of those first three episodes. And so Casa uh, Cassian, uh, leaves f- for our next three episodes, which are the Aldani heist and and I loved how this really shifted genres a little bit and made it a very classically structured sort of heist caper.
1: Yes, I, I very much enjoyed these Aldani episodes, and I really liked the new characters that were introduced.
0: Yeah, yeah, and some great actors, too. Uh, even moss Bakarach.
1: One of the few American actors with a juicy role on the show.
0: Yeah, actually, and I also liked how when we shifted location to Aldani, the there was also a big shift not just in cast and in tone, but in color and production design. It all still felt of the same world, and we were still uh, visiting other uh, returning loca- locales through the, the B stories and C stories going on, like going back to Coruscant, the capital planet. So we're not in a complete we're not completely ditching what we saw in the first three episodes, but our primary setting is suddenly this. love green kind of uh, cloudy uh, very moist feeling planet where the, where there's gonna be this exciting light show in the sky when this specific stellar phenomena happens and that is their window to do pull off the heist because that stellar phenomena like you know messes up with the the sensors or the radar or, or whatever little explanation it took to link those two things in a real classic kind of like oceans 11 style like oh of course that there's the 20 minutes where the situation Security cameras reboot. That's our opportunity,
1: and it worked. It was very suspenseful and exciting.
0: Yeah, and and, uh, and
1: visually stunning.
0: Yes, and gorgeous. The show uh, already does a great job of using a lot of practical effects and practical sets to make the world feel really lived in. Uh, and what I really loved about the Aldani kind of climax at, at, when they pull off the heist in the third episode there is that the, the uh, practical stuff was still great and real, real gritty. That was one of the first ones where they also had a really beautiful um, CGI sequence overlaid, like green screen, not just, you know, the, the scenes in space are obviously all CGI, but uh, when they actually had the light show happen in the sky and that's going on while we're seeing all of this practical stuff happening, the, it looked so beautiful and so well um, combined, well integrated, that, that just the production design and the quality of that was uh, a real high point in, in a show where already the story is the high point. Agreed. That then takes us to a little, like, um, amuse-bouche in the middle, the kind of the eye of the storm. So there's this one episode after they pull off the Aldani heist that just deals with the consequences of the Aldani heist, both uh, for Cassian, who now has all this money he got from the heist, but he's kind of on the run. He's a fugitive in more ways than one now. Uh, and then also back on the planet Coruscant, where the Empire is dealing from the embarrassment, essentially, of the Aldani heist and reacting by passing these new laws to, to lock up more people, to reduce sedition, uh to just keep people who are already imprisoned in prison longer by resentencing them. And Cassian gets caught up in in this kind of like crackdown on uh let's call it kind of broken windows policing, but in space. Uh and so he gets sentenced to prison, not for his role in any of the heists or murders he's been involved in so far, but for, you know, looking at a robot the wrong way, essentially.
1: Essentially, yeah, the plotting here really made me think that the um, writers had engaged in the history of empire in a way that Star Wars hasn't previously. Um, I really felt like I was uh, like looking at um, like a real revolutionary story, and um, it's always a mistake to put them in prison.
0: Yeah, it, uh, it, is, it is always a mistake to lock trouble. them up together. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. that's exactly how we wind up at the next three-part story arc, which is the prison break arc. And once again, like the the genre shifts just enough to tell us like, yeah, you know where this is going. You lock these people all up together, they're going to break out. And that's our Narkeena 5. That's the planet, the prison planet, the ocean prison planet. Because also, again, gorgeous visuals of bringing them to this prison that seemingly is just a building in the middle of the ocean with no land anywhere around it and 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 then when they break out of the prison at the end of that three-part arc you the viewer know that they're stuck in the middle of the ocean until they at the very end of the episode reach the door and it's a ledge into the water they, so oh, so good so good
1: they say several times one way out And then when you finally see that that one way is just they're going to have to sink or swim, it's uh, very satisfying as a viewer.
0: It's very satisfying and also very sad because there is an implication that most of them don't live. In, In fact, we only know that Cassian and Melshi make it to shore. We see no one else after that.
1: That's true, though I do think we might find in season two, like, little, uh, pepperings in throughout that I, I some so. other folks have gotten out
0: i hope so because it, it, it is an extremely bleak tone if they're the only two who made it to shore uh at the very least the implication is very clear that many of them died and it, mm-hmm. it is you know uh, especially for a disney plus show but also star wars has traditionally shied away from um a, a lot of death uh, of people you know. They they always choose the, the character deaths. The, the, you know, it is a show. It is a show. It is a franchise, a series, that was kicked off with a, a mass genocide of an entire planet, Alderaan, in the original movie. So, like, yeah, yeah, of course, there's a lot of death and destruction in Star Wars, but the actual killing of people... In front of you is often relegated to lightsaber battles or uh, you know little lasers hitting a a masked stormtrooper and some sparks flying out and the stormtrooper falling over. Not a lot of actual wrenching uh, tragic death that you see with your own two eyes. That's always been a classic kind of balance that they've struck to the point where as many fans know George Lucas re-edited scenes from the original so that Han Solo didn't shoot first because a good Han Solo wouldn't shoot first Uh, so you know that that's the expectation you come in if you have the baggage of Star Wars and they do not shy away from being much grittier and more real with death in many many different ways both from people uh, who Cassian kills and they they, they are still a bit reserved in how frequently he kills, but he kills, and he kills people... Uh, ruthlessly in a few cases because he has to to survive, uh, but in all, also in the way that it just disposes of so many characters who you uh, grow fond of through these little mini stories. Uh, and and spoiler alert, not many of them make it. Uh, same is true for the Ferrex story, where at, at least more people from Ferex are still alive, though uh, for how long I'm I'm concerned. But um, but definitely the Aldani heist, we lose a couple of people who we like one of whom clearly is inspiring Kassa to become a revolutionary.
1: Nemec. Nemec. i uh, Lefty. I love him.
0: <laughs> and then, of course, uh, um, most of the prisoners in Narcena V. Five. Um, mm-hmm. That is that that level of um, tragedy is also, I think, part of why it feels like such a real story about an empire. Uh, growing so totalitarian that the people must rise up.
1: Agreed. I also think another way that they're accomplishing that is In the fact that, uh, the show is handling, um, indigeneity in a way it hasn't previously. Um, and so that the fact that we do get to see these different planets, these different, like, states that have essentially been colonized by the empire, um, and get to see the details of their lives there and how they have these distinct cultures, it also helps reinforce that theme that the empire is like a colonial empire in the sense that we know it and not just like this sort of um stand in for evil in a more um opaque way like it is in the original trilogy.
0: Yeah, yeah, I actually think that's a, a great a comparison to say it's like a colonial empire in in the the real world. Um, and in a similar way, something that struck me, especially in the uh, prison break story arc, was uh, an important plot point there is the prison is like understaffed. There aren't enough mm. guards to actually control that many prisoners, but they control them through a, a combination of uh, electrocution because the floor is electrified and they can electrocute them at any moment. That's the main way, but also through, you know, keeping them separated, keeping them from talking to each other, keeping them uh, isolated so that they can't realize that there aren't that many guards, that they so they don't understand that they could, you know, risk it and rise up and what happens is Cassian figures that out. Cassian figures out number 1 that no one's ever getting out of this prison, that when their their sentence ends, they just get moved to another section of the facility because it's so siloed that nobody knows. They think they they think their, you know, their cellmate has been released, but really their cellmate has been moved to level 2.
1: Yeah, a real insight into how oppressive regimes work with the idea that what's happening uh the ways that they are able to um, create new things and sort of um, innovate are only in cruelty.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I I also thought there was a really like good juicy parallel between the way the Empire isolated uh, each you know prisoner group to keep them from knowing what, what was happening to anyone else uh, and and at the same time the Empire itself is so you know um, siloed and fractured and stretched thin that they mm-hmm. don't realize that they are looking for this uh, terrorist axis is the code name that the, the Empire is given to the person we know is Cassian essentially or, or I guess it's No, I think, it's I think Axis
1: is, is Luther but, right? But
0: uh, Cassian, they know... Sorry, you're, you're correct. Yeah. Uh, Cassian is their way to get to Axis, to Luthan. They know that Axis is this kind of linchpin to a lot of the rebel activity that's going on. And the only person that they know by their, you know, who they know the identity of, who could get them to Axis, is Cassian. And so Cassian is, like, the most wanted man in the galaxy. But the galaxy is so, you know, authoritarian and siloed and disorganized, they don't realize they have him in custody this whole time.
1: Bureaucracy. Yeah. (laughs) Is... is completely uh stymieing them even the uh and also all of the jockeying for position among the different members of the empire uh you know they're always double crossing and undercutting each other
0: yeah at the, at at the ISB uh and and we're also we get some of the show's actual juiciest uh characters who stick around through the whole season cuz we we've been focusing so much on Cassian and his story uh and and after Narkeena 5 he does Break out of the prison, and we get our two part finale, uh, which I know we have a little more to talk about there. But but uh, I want to talk about all the characters on Coruscant for a minute because obviously there's Luthen, who we've mentioned; he's our our center of the uh, resistance movement, so to speak. But there's equally interesting people on both sides of this Empire equation. We've got Deirdre, uh, the the ISB investigator Deirdre Miro.
1: Yeah, Denise Gao, really great performance so here, haunting.
0: Uh, yeah. And and we have her kind of um, uh, let's say the yin to her yang so to speak Senator Mon Mothma who is uh, it's such a fascinating character and such a great um, kind of slow burning story unfolding in the background because Mon and Cassian don't know each other at all they, they, this is about as far apart as the stories sort of get uh, but she is so interesting on in her own right and the direction that they have that pointed you know it's going to get very explosive in season two
1: i really like the way that my expectations for that character were played upon in the sense that i underestimated her i assumed that because she's a senator and because she's so poised that she would not be a very active member of the revolution that in fact maybe she'd really be holding people back and that she would be a little bit fearful, um, taking half measures. And the show knew, I think, that people would judge her that way. And so they played on that and gave her this really exciting arc um, where she became one of my favorite characters and really is putting herself in a very precarious position.
0: Yeah, in, in m- even more ways than you expected. Because going in, you know she's in a precarious position because she's secretly funding some of these uh, resistance activities. But it, it, everything just adds on to that. She never backs down from that the way you think she might. And instead, she keeps upping the ante and getting herself in deeper and deeper to the point where she's sort of betrothing her daughter to a loan shark.
1: Mm-hmm. No biggie. Yeah, to a pretty seedy character.
0: You know it's fine, it's fine. and uh, honestly uh, where i the the scene to me that like sums up how she sort of subverted those expectations, I think is in the finale she gets into her space limo which, by the way, sexiest car I've ever seen is the space limo Mon Mothman drives in. And we've already known uh, pretty well that that everyone around her is probably spying for the Empire. And it's it's definitely implied that her driver of the limo is an informant for the Empire. Oh, yeah. We're we're pretty sure of that uh, across many, many scenes, even though they don't need to literally show us that until after this scene when it all adds up real nicely. Uh, so she gets into the limo with her husband and she tells the, the driver, oh, Uh, you know turn off the speaker we need privacy so of course he like turns off the speaker and then immediately turns it back on to listen in and she lays into her husband Perrin about his gambling debts which I am pretty sure she made up and I am positive mm-hmm. is a cover story she's laying for the financial shenanigans she has to pull to cover her tracks with the money that she's given to the resistance. And Perrin reacts in this really kind of incredulous way. But we then see her driver informing the Empire that he's in debt and that right. the weird financial transactions they've seen under Mon Mothma's accounts must have something to do with covering his debts.
1: It also gives her some cover for uh, developing more of a relationship with this uh, CD Loan Shark guy, because that information is probably going to go back to the ISB as well. So if it can seem like, oh, well, they're doing this as a family because of gambling debts instead of taking a closer look at her finances, that also gives her cover.
0: Yeah, I thought such a savvy Way to uh, lay that trap because they didn't set it up. I, I, you know, a lesser show might set up a scene where somebody confronts Mon and says, "How are you going to throw him off your tail?" And she's like, "Don't worry, I have a plan." And instead, they just show us, and then we see the consequences. So if you weren't paying super close attention, or if you were on your phone, don't worry. There's a little follow-up to make it clear what she just did. But I thought that throughout the se- uh, season, the show really trusted the viewer to, to you know, say. You you can figure this out. We don't have to ex- deal with a ton of exposition. We don't have to fill you in on a bunch of Star Wars lore because that lore might uh, you know enrich some of this. Might provide some Easter eggs where you see something and you go, oh, that's really cool. But you don't need it.
1: No, and I think the show for the most part resisted having too many like cutesy Dickensian coincidences where like oh everybody's really brothers which yeah. Star Wars can can be guilty of from time to time. Uh, Everybody's
0: related to the same person. It's crazy.
1: <laughs> We're all Palpatines. But uh, they did have one of those with the Mothmas um, when they revealed that uh, Vel, who was um, part of the Aldani resistance, the leader of the heist group on Aldani, uh, is the sister of Mon Mothma. I found that that very uh a a nice little twist that they didn't, uh, you know, pushed too far in
0: that direction. Yeah, that was a a nice one. That was the right amount of interconnectedness, because they're both essentially new characters. So it's not like you're doing some crazy, like, they're actually Skywalkers. Like, no, you're just saying, hey, these two characters who you had no reason to think were related because they've been in two separate storylines, well, they're both actually working for the Resistance. So in a way, it makes perfect sense that they might know each other and, in fact, might even be related.
1: And one of them might have drawn the other into the situation. Exactly,
0: and makes and you, a lot of sense. You, honestly, I who drew who in? Because at first it seems right? real, real clear that it, you would think it's oh Vel, the rebellious one, drew in Mon, her poised senatorial sister. And by the end of the season, I think the exact opposite.
1: Agreed. Ooh, I, ho- I hope we get more of them in season two.
0: I, I have a feeling we will. That that relationship feels juicy enough. Also, they definitely planted the seed that Vel will not look kindly upon this betrothal solution to, to Mon's debts, that she understands the sacrifices being made for the resistance, but also at the same time, it you can tell this is about a kind of generational shift in, in uh, that culture that uh, Mon, Mothma, and Vel come from, the planet they come from, where the old way is betrothal, but that is not something we should celebrate. We should be doing the new way where, you know, people get to choose who they marry. Which uh, also And women
1: specifically. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Also, again, a nice detail of how um, each culture in the Empire is a different place with different customs, with different people, even if they all look like humans, except for the aliens. But to be honest, like so many cultures on Star Wars just look like humans, it's easy to just go, well, they must all be like people. And by that, you really mean they must all be like whatever culture I'm from, because that's the lens I'm viewing this through. And so it's those details that really kind of make that universe feel bigger and richer.
1: Agreed. I also think that and um, so maybe some Star Wars uh scholars can correct me on this. Is Vel one of the first out lesbians characters in That is a good question. Star Wars? I mean I I, I don't know if she's out in the world but she's out in terms of our viewing. Mm-hmm. Um Vel and Cinta uh seem to have a relationship. Um you know they talk about sharing a tent. A, yeah.
0: And if, if you read certain social media networks, that, that relationship is why the show failed. It's too woke, man. Oh, brother. Oh, goodness. But of course, no, I actually loved that detail. That comes out very organically in the Aldani storyline. And, and then their relationship becomes more complicated because Sinta is more dyed-in-the-wool resistance. Sinta mm. will sacrifice love for the cause. And Vel, Vel is clearly torn about that, both with Sinta and with Mon and, uh, and her family.
1: Ooh, yeah, no, they really better bring them back.
0: Yeah, I feel feel good about that. But who knows? Because season two, the story is going to jump further ahead faster. Season one, while there were very noticeable time jumps, was really um, a much more uh, slow build, where season two is going to leap many years ahead until the death of Cassian, or really until the events of the movie Rogue One, um, which you can see now if you want.
1: Yeah, it's, it's worth watching. It's a great
0: movie. It's a great movie. Yeah. Um, okay, okay. We have one last thing to talk about with this show, uh, which is uh, how the season ended. But, of course, we can't talk about how the season ended without talking about the amazing score by Nicholas Patel throughout the entire season. But his work, which you may know from Succession, uh, his work kind of uh, comes to a climax in this funeral scene In the final episode, the final episode is called Rick's Road, which is the name of this road where they do the uh, funeral procession for Marva, who was uh, Cassian's adopted mother, who dies uh, near the end of the season. And and this uh, funeral procession, number one, so beautiful. Number two, musically, really interesting. Number three, is the action climax of the season when all of the characters descend upon Ferex for this funeral because they know Cassian's going to show up?
1: I love it. It was so, it it really used the rituals in a very exciting way that felt both, um, like, stayed in the sense that The um, solemnity of the ritual allowed them to build tension and it was like I was on the edge of my seat waiting to see what would happen uh, with all these opposing forces coming together.
0: Yeah. And I, I, what, one thing I love about this show in general, and this is such a great example of it, is it created these new rituals in-universe for Star Wars. It's not like, oh, everyone knows about the Ferrix funeral procession. It was in A New Hope. Like, no, nobody's ever heard of this thing before. They created this entirely for this story and these people and these characters. But they laid all the groundwork so that it felt like, of course, this is a ritual. Of course, this is what these people do. It feels a part of their world. World. And that goes all the way back to the pilot from the beginning of the season where we first hear the uh, anvil hitter hitting the big anvil in the bell tower as the call to the start of the workday or the end of the workday. And all those things added up to the point where they go, yeah, you know, the funeral procession from the Daughters of Ferex and the band. You're like, well, of course, this is a really musical society. They they guide their day by this, like, giant musical instrument. Like, all of it feels of a piece with this world they've created, and it requires zero previous information about Star Wars.
1: Right. And at the same time, it's so visual and so um, evocative because really all of these rituals uh, act as metaphor within the story. Um, when someone dies on Ferx their remains are put into a brick, and then they become part of a building, like part of a foundation. And just seeing that, like, You know this resistance is made of the deaths of their ancestors is so powerful and they don't have to say anything corny about it to make it powerful it's just that visual metaphor working for you and then also the power powerful oral metaphor of this score which is being played you know live by the cast and not you know just separate film score
0: Yeah, and that that lets it build with the actual tension. Because there's this added tension, I guess, of, you know, I'm watching the musicians. I know something bad's going to happen. As the tension in the music is building, the music that they're playing, I know they're in mortal danger. The more tense the music gets, the more that scene builds towards its climax, usually you're not thinking, oh, my God, but the orchestra, they might die. When I'm watching Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power, beautiful orchestra, great music, I never worry that the, the goblins, whatever they're called, you know, the things in the Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. it's all a big whatever, the dragons in Lord of the Rings, right? I'm not worried that they're going to come and kill the cellist. But in in this finale, I am literally worried for the life of everyone on that screen because even if they survive the, the uh, riot that essentially breaks out, thanks to Marva's giant hologram speech, which (laughs) was a little corny, but I also just loved that they were like, yes, she's a giant talking hologram telling them to rise up. That that also feels right. Anyway, after that, they're all probably going to get killed by the Empire. It's just like every moment of it, you're like, oh, no, 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 no. There's no turning back. Even though nothing has happened yet, the die is already cast.
1: I think that's very accurate. I also think if fiona shaw appeared to you as a hologram and was like chris rise up there's no part of you that would be like this is a little corny you would be like yes ma'am fiona shaw i'm doing it
0: that's true that's really true i also love
1: really is inspirational
0: they try to shut her down by like throwing a jacket over the the robot that's projecting Mm -hmm. the hologram so good so good yeah uh but, you know, we have a link in the show notes to an interview with Nick Bratel where he talks about the process for the whole season. So many interesting details I didn't pick up on. But one of the things he says is that funeral scene, that that, that music, that march, the instruments, that was one of the first things they tackled because it was one of the hardest things they'd have to, to do for the season. And they had to create these, you know, musical instruments that look in-world but also function and play good music.
1: I love that. It reminded me of... <laughs> Okay, I know. I'm going into corny territory. But it reminded me of Lost and how for some of the music in the first season of Lost, they used um, pieces of airplanes to make the different sounds. And I was like, yes, this is really thinking of like creating a world. And I love when a TV show will really engage in that kind of world building. And I think that's one of the things that this has done so successfully.
0: Yeah. Did you see it in the same interview? Nick Patel talks about how they got the sound for the, the anvil, the, the bell tower anvil. It was going to Tony Gilroy's house on the Upper West Side and hitting a pipe. They it's would perfect. just tried hitting the pipe with different things. Come on over, Nick. We're going to smack a pipe for a while.
1: I love it. It's a really effective sound.
0: I, I, me too. I'm like, that is, man, that, that's the kind of creative process that you, you think that uh, a creative career will be like when you're a child. You're like, yeah, they just go around and they hit things and they try stuff out. And then you, you get old and you go, no, they sit in meetings and they plan things and they do their finances. No, you can still go over to Tony Gilroy's house and smack a pipe and call it art.
1: Don't you dare waste Nick Bratel's talent on a meeting.
0: God, no. God, no. And you know... um one other detail that I, as soon as I read it, I went, of course, every episode has a different opening, uh, little musical number, because the opening credits is only like a, a nine second title card. Uh, and it's a real subtle musical stinger, essentially. And so I, I noted it as like, oh, I really love how subtle and um, uh, ominous the opening music is on Andor. I I really like that. I hadn't listened closely enough to realize it's literally different in every episode.
1: No, but I think that also speaks to the success of the um, structure, yeah. back to your story structure, of of this series. And that I've heard a few people compare it to, you know, um, like a few movies because it is in these multi-episode arcs. And I don't think that that's the case at all. I do agree that the initial three-episode arc does start a little bit slow, but once it picks up and finds its voice and and really lets the structure work for it, I think it's using the fact that it is a TV show really, really successfully.
0: Yeah, I strongly agree. And I think this leads to the question I led with uh, back at the beginning of our spoiler section, which is which of these story arcs was your favorite, Diane?
1: I'm torn between Aldani and the finale. But I, there were moments of all three that I really liked.
0: Same, same uh, on moments of all three. Yeah, f- four if you count the finale as one of the arcs, yeah. I, I would say uh, Aldani is my favorite of the— s- if I had to watch them as a standalone. Aldani was such a great heist caper. So tight. You met the new characters, you fell in love with them, and then you parted ways with most of them in a, in a really uh, just well-executed fashion because it also was such a shift from the first three episodes that initially at least i thought "Ooh, are they gonna am i gonna like these people as much am i gonna feel kind of like well why invest in these characters if every three episodes there's gonna be a big shake-up and i'm gonna you know have to meet a bunch of new people again but that concern was completely unfounded because they executed so well um so I, I, as a standalone, that would be my pick. But man, the way that the the show picks up its momentum across all the storylines as the season goes on b- makes a very strong case for the finale. At uh, mm-hmm. that, that two part finale, essentially, part one being uh, the the setup of uh, uh, you know uh, Marva dying and Cassian finding out, and part two being the execution. It's so good.
1: It really is. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. It was. Um so compelling and it really made me want to watch more Star Wars so you know the content is working.
0: The Bobs are happy. The Bobs are very happy tonight. Uh, and you, dear listener, you might be happy as well if you check out Andor on Disney. Plus. If you do, uh, write to us. Tell us what you think about it. We do have some uh, listener mail in the mailbag. Didn't have time to get to it this week, so we will rustle through that next week. Join our mailbag by emailing us podcast at streamageddon.com. Uh, and until next time, whether you're listening to us near, far, wherever you are in a galaxy, far, far away. Keep streaming.
1: If Fiona Shaw appeared to you as a hologram and was like, Chris, rise up, there's no part of you that would be like, this is a little corny. You would be like, yes, ma'am, Fiona Shaw. I'm doing it.